0: That's the nonconformist part. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium, high-performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable, you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date, 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks. Plus, free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. Feral Audio. Hey, everybody. Are you looking for uh, more sexiness in your sexy times in when you have sex on your sex spot in your sex house? Uh, Well, I can help you with that if you wanted to get, like, some adult toys or movies or... uh, a leather mask with a zipper on it. Uh, You can go to adamandeve.com for a limited time and get 50% off just about on any item. And, you know, that's not all, by the way. Uh, When you select your one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three... one, two, three adult videos for, you know, to watch other people have sex while you have sex or have sex with yourself by yourself or just to have on in the background while you eat Thanksgiving dinner Uh, plus you'll also get a free gift so sensual that I can't say it on my podcast and also I don't know what it is so I couldn't say it anyway but to top it all off we'll even throw in free shipping on on your entire order yes that's right free shipping on your entire order. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer. Get 50% off on one item when you type in the code word DWYER D-W-Y-E-R, my last name. And and when you put that in the offer code upon checkout and and you'll get your three free DVDs, an extra gift, and free shipping. Just remember the code is DWYER D-W-Y-E-R at (music) adamandeve.com Hello, everybody, and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you like that theme music you hear there, that is a band called Les Blanks. Check them out at lesblanks.com. Real good stuff. Uh, If you haven't listened to my show before, it is just what the title implies there. It is a conversation with me, Matt Dwyer. And uh, I usually talk to somebody who super fascinates me or I find interesting or people suggest and they say, hey, this person's really wild. Talk to them. Um... Like, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to hopefully talk to a rodeo clown, and that sounds kind of goddamn awesome to me. But today's conversation is with a drummer legend, Mickey Jones, who played with Bob Dylan when he went electric. He played with the band, Kenny Rogers. He's There's probably a million songs from the 60s and 70s that you're like, I like that tune. Well, it's probably Mickey Jones drumming on it. Uh, the weird thing about this interview is I, this is actually one of the first episodes I recorded. And um, it got a little lost in the shuffle. (laughs) Kind of got a little lost in the shuffle. And I just uh, was like needing an episode. So I was like, oh, fuck, I I found this. Uh, The funny thing is Mickey asked me to watch my swearing, which I did a pretty good job of. Yeah, I think so. uh, I don't know. I don't know if you'll notice if you've been listening to all the shows, if you'll notice a interview style difference. But this is like literally one of the first interviews I've ever done. Um, on for conversations with Matt Dwyer. So it's kind of interesting for me to, to hear it again. Um, speaking of swearing a lot though, I just was in San Diego doing some road shows with David Koechner all weekend. And you know, I have a serious girlfriend now and I don't, you don't realize how much in line uh, a girlfriend keeps you (laughs) because, because it's just pretty much the whole weekend, I was just like beer and like blah I guess I'll, I'll masturbate. <laughs> it's like why not? Just like I just I mean I didn't be, I didn't go to like a titty bar or anything like that. I you know, I don't wouldn't go to those if I were single anyway. But um it's just like you just left to my own devices. I'm just like, "Yes, I will have some more cholesterol salt and I was living like I'm like uh I'm like, "Oh, I win a million dollars if I have a stroke by Tuesday. Okay, I'll have more booze cheese and meat, please." Um yeah, not good. Um, and then my girlfriend came down, she joined me, and uh, we still drank a little bit and ate some cholesterol, but it was uh it was a lot more I just uh, I just appreciated my girlfriend a lot more where I was just like, "Oh, yeah. Oh, thank God. I just can hang out with you and not just hang out in bars with anybody who'll give me a free drink." <laughs> So it's nice. It's nice to uh, become a disgusting pig for two days and then realize your life is a lot better sleeping next to your girlfriend. But guys, I think a lot of guys always are like, and maybe I think I'm too old to even have this thought. But, you know, you're like, oh, what else is out there? I, I can get better. I can get more. It's like, no, thanks, man. It is it is nice to have a girlfriend and. I don't have to worry about ever. Because now it's like if I'm in a bar or whatever, I see people trying to meet. Or uh, some of my friends are on that Tinder thing, which I just heard of this weekend because I don't pay attention to anything. But, you know, like, cruising chicks on their cell phone by flipping pictures. or I was just like, oh, thank God. Like, what a horrible time to try to meet somebody in the world where everyone's just trying to fuck over a cell phone. I don't know. If that made sense. But I'm just f- fucking thrilled that it's over for me and I don't have to fucking deal with single life anymore. That being said, here's a guy who asked me not to swear during the interview. So I just sweared a bunch in my intro to make up for it. Please enjoy the conversation with Mickey McGillan. Sitting in the home uh, in Simi Valley of uh, Mickey Jones, who is uh, to to list the things that you've done in this world is uh, I don't think I have the time to do it. But uh, for a few, I mean, you've you've drummed with Bob Dylan, uh, you've you've drummed with pretty much everybody in in addition to uh, uh, Kenny Rogers, and um, you're in a number of films. I've written down some of the things. Uh, Uh, Sling Blade, by the way, which is one of my all-time favorite films. You're on uh, Home Improvement for many years. Uh, You're that guy that we've seen. Well,
1: I will tell you, I am truly the luckiest guy I know. I have been able to make a living doing what I love to do for my whole life. And most people, I mean, let's face it. Most people, the alarm goes off at six in the morning because they got to be down to work at seven and they dread getting up because they hate their job. I can honestly say I've loved my job my whole life.
0: Was there a distinct moment in your like when you were young? Because for me, I, I, I saw my father come home. He, he worked construction and he was like near 50 and he couldn't stand up straight from laying asphalt. And I was like, I don't Want that life? <laughs>
1: None of us want to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know,
0: I looked at my dad. My dad came
1: home from work. We lived on the Naval Air Station in Dallas, Texas. That's mm-hmm. where I grew up. My dad was a Navy pilot. Well, I thought his job was pretty dang cool. So in, when I was eight or nine years old, instead of playing baseball after school, I would go down to the operations hangar, and the guys would let me climb up and sit in the cockpit of the old Corsair fighters. And that's—I dreamed I was a fighter pilot. That's pretty. That's so pretty great that, as a I kid. I thought what my dad did was pretty dang cool. And uh, so, as, as I got into high school, I—I uh, I got into music. I started uh, playing drums. One summer, I saved up all my money and I bought this little rinky-dink set of drums. And I set them up in my bedroom, and I would try to play drums to records that I would put on the record player. Who would in you my try room. to
0: play with? I saw you have a Gene Krupa uh, uh, autograph. By yeah, the
1: way. that's pretty cool. I saw Gene Krupa when I was uh, well, I was in New York City, and I I was not old enough to go in the Metropole, which was the club he was playing at. But uh, uh, I was able. The bouncers let me stand right at the front door. And I got to watch Gene Krupa, and this was in 1959.
0: Was he your, was he like the well, idol for you?
1: just the name yeah. took, took charge of your life if you were a drummer. And then, then the name Buddy Rich took charge of Gene Krupa. And uh, so I got to see Gene Krupa play in person at the Metropole in New York City, but only from standing outside the front door as close as the bouncers would let me stand to watch Gene Krupa. And I got to tell you, uh, truly one of the thrills of my life because I had heard of Gene Krupa since I, was, since I started playing at about 15. And, uh, and then to get to actually stand and watch him play in person was sort of... Uh, The cat's meow, as they say. It was was a highlight.
0: Was that the kind of... Were you listening to that sort of music when you started playing along with? Because I I played drums as well. I did the same thing in high school. Is that right? Well, that's a a great question. Because (laughs) I was
1: not a a jazz player's fan. I did like big band music, Mm -hmm. but I was not a jazz, particularly a jazz fan. Uh, uh, I really, at 15, I got so... Hooked, hook, line, and sinker, as they say, into the blues. Uh, when I was 15 years old, uh, on the radio in Dallas on Saturday night at midnight, you could hear the black radio station from Fort Worth, KOK, and they would be playing Lightning Hopkins and uh, Willie Dixon and Memphis Slim. And Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and T-Bone Walker and Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and all the people that I thought made the music that absolutely got into my heart and my soul. So I was a blues fan from about age fifteen.
0: So it was actually I had the uh, same. There was a radio station in Chicago that played blues till dawn. Oh yeah, and I would stay up all night and I'd record it on a cassette. And I didn't know who half the people were, but it was just there was there was this this feeling in it that like it that no other music did to you me hit
1: the nail on the head. And <laughs> Chicago is one of the great blues towns in the world. And it's because all those blues players like B.B. King and Muddy Waters, they all left Clarksdale, Mississippi to go to the north where there were better jobs and that's how those blues players from mississippi and louisiana and texas ended up in chicago and detroit and places like that because that's where the jobs were picking cotton got to be old stuff in you know in the 40s and 50s and that's when those guys moved north mm-hmm. and i grew up in texas and i got to tell you some of the great musicians in the world are from texas and if you look at that little that little corridor of texas oklahoma arkansas louisiana some of the great players in the world came from that area and uh, i don't know if you remember an old blues player named jimmy reed well jimmy reed was my hero in texas and when i was 16 i was playing drums with jimmy reed at uh, smu southern methodist university at all of the uh, the uh, sororities parties we were playing i'd all night long i'd get 10 bucks for for playing all night long how
0: did you meet up how did you start playing with him
1: he saw me playing at a club one night and asked me to come and play with him at these smu parties and uh
0: well like you I just might have been out of your mind right i mean with I,
1: well he was one of my heroes <laughs> and uh i i would literally get ten dollars for playing all night long and he would play for all the wine that he could drink and, and the thing about playing with Jimmy Reed, there was no fancy stuff. You didn't play any fancy fills. You played two and four and one and three. And and if you did a fill in a Jimmy Reed song, it was almost too much. It was in the way. And that's how I learned to play drums. You learn to play by kicking it off and just playing one two three and four so it's just two and four and (laughs) and and I think that's that's what that's where I honed my skills I was playing in a one of these battle of the bands at the drag strip in 1959
0: where's where's the drag strip
1: oh well we had big drag strips. oh that's still in Texas oh yeah in Texas drag strips were huge And we used to play at the Yellow Belly Drag Strip. And uh, there was a, a band that played, and the drummer was so good, I couldn't take my eyes off him. And one by one, the guys would leave the stage until it was just the drummer doing a 15 or 20 minute drum solo. And I was mesmerized. I couldn't take my eyes off this guy. I was so impressed at the way this guy could play. And I didn't have those chops. But when he finished and the guys came back on the stage and started playing, he was still playing a drum solo. So it hit me right then and there. Am I gonna do better as a musician if I can play with a group or I can play by myself doing a drum solo? And I chose to play straight ahead and be able to play with a group instead of a drum solo. And I think that's why I had the success I did in my career. I never, ever looked for a job as a drummer. I had musicians looking for me to be their drummer. And and that's the way it was my whole career. Uh, Trini Lopez sought me out. Johnny Rivers used to come into uh, the the the, um, the PJs when I was working with Trini Lopez. Johnny Rivers would come up to me every, every night, and he'd say, when are you going to play drums for me? And I kept saying, well, John, when you get enough money, give me a call. <laughs> and then Bob Dylan came in the whiskey, found me out in the whiskey with Johnny Rivers. And that's where Bob Dylan approached me to be his drummer.
0: Is, he, is it true that you st- when you started playing for Dylan, that's when he made the change to electric? Yeah. He, he came Which in the Which was controversial.
1: Oh, we got booed off the stage everywhere we went. Uh, when Dylan came in the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, he, he came up to me and said, I just want you to know you're my favorite rock and roll drummer in the world, and I want to record with you. And I was pretty jazzed to have.
0: I think I would cry. Somebody <laughs> like Bob
1: Dylan say that to me, so uh, yeah, I, I wanted to do that. Bob Dylan, who wouldn't want to play with Bob Dylan?
0: Yeah, I I, I mean I, that's I couldn't I can't even speak. That's, <laughs> I, I'm well, trying to compare of who I, that would be like Woody Allen asking me to be in. a – I would lose my mind.
1: Well, and the way that happened is Bob came in the whiskey approached me about being his drummer but it was really about recording he wanted to record with me and that was about a year before we did the electric tour but I knew that I was going to be his drummer no matter what so when I got the call from Albert Grossman Bob's manager he called me in Detroit I was with uh, Johnny Rivers and he said, uh, Bob wants you to be his drummer. And I said, well, we talked about recording. Uh, when is that? And he said, no, he's going to go electric, put a band together, and you're the first guy he wants. And he's going to look for another band, but he wants you to be his drummer. And uh, I said, well, as that progresses, let me know. And then I get the call that Bob is coming to L.A. to rehearse for the first, his first electric world tour. And the guys that came with him were from Toronto, and that was Robbie Robertson, Garth Hudson, Rick Danko, Richard Manuel, and myself. But when they came from New York, they brought a drummer with them. His name was Sandy Konikoff. He had been the drummer with this group called the Hawks. Well, long before Sandy Konakoff They had a drummer named Bobby Gregg. Long before Bobby Gregg, the first drummer with the group, because he was with Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, was Levon Helm. Right. So a lot of people say, well, I took Levon's place on that tour, which is incorrect information.
0: That's That's the one thing I always hear. Yeah,
1: well, a lot of people know that, but it's incorrect information. And I'm going to set everybody straight right now, (laughs) let them know exactly how this happened. Levon and the Hawks left Ronnie Hawkins and became a group in Toronto. Levon did one concert with Bob, and they got booed. And the way Ronnie Hawkins tells the story is that because of that one concert, Levon had a nervous breakdown, went back, to Fayetteville, Arkansas, where he grew up, and Bobby Gregg took his place. Now, I don't know how long Bobby Gregg was with the group, but when he left the group, Sandy Konikoff took his place. So Levon was long out of the picture. So when the group came to L.A. for us to rehearse for the world tour, Sandy Konikoff was then made aware that he was going to be nothing more than a percussionist, He was going to play tambourine and, you know, jingles and stuff like that. But I was the drummer. So I don't think that set well with Sandy Konikoff. (laughs) So the next day, Sandy Konikoff left the group and went back to New York, back to Toronto, actually. So now here's the group, lead guitars, Robbie Robertson, Richard Manuel on piano, Rick Danko on bass, Garth Hudson on organ and I'm on drums in fact if you go back and look at the first CD of the anthology box set from the band I'm on the first two cuts of the first CD and they give me credit for it finally
0: it, they didn't originally?
1: for years the Bob Dylan live CD nobody everybody thought it was Levon for some reason And uh, uh, I was not real happy when Levon talked about that in his book. He he gave everybody the impression, because they thought it was Levon, he gave everybody the impression it was Levon. He didn't correct it and say, well, I was not the drummer on that tour, which I would have given him a lot of credit had he done that, but he didn't. He took credit for being the drummer on that tour, and he was not the drummer. On that tour, I was the drummer. On that tour,
0: was there when that <clears throat> when he, that started? Did you all know that you were going to be booed off? Did, was it that controversial, or was it completely shocking that people turned on on uh, Butch's? Just...
1: When we started that tour, the first concert was in Hawaii, and I don't think we realized for the first few concerts we were getting booed. And we were still the Hawks. And it was about a month into that tour, getting booed off the stage every night. They hated our guts. Bob would come out and do the first half with his acoustic guitar and his harmonica, and you could hear a pin drop in that auditorium. But when we came out with drums and electric guitars and they they started foot stomping and booing before we even got started. And the media never called us the Hawks. All the media ever said about our concert, the next day in the paper it would say, uh, uh, the the band came on and the band was too loud. Bob Dylan should send the band back to America. The band sucks. So it was because of that they never called us the Hawks. It was because of that that we started calling ourselves the band, and that's how we got the name the band that was long before Levon. I was the original drummer with the band mm-hmm. and and then when 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 bob me i you probably know the story about Bob Dylan crashed his motorcycle, yes, at Woodstock in front of Albert Grossman's house and uh we were to, we had, when we finished, I had a, we had a month off. I came back to L.A. I stayed in New York for a few days. I hung out with uh, Barry Feinstein, who was married then to Mary Travers of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And uh, the guys went up to the big pink house in Woodstock. And all they wanted to do was get loaded every day. And I was not a guy to do that. Uh, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. Do you n- never I probably, if I say I smoked dope a half a dozen times in my life, that's an exaggeration.
0: Wow! I mean, for that era, you everyone else. Oh, has so- oh
1: I, I was around it all day, every day. Uh, I put cocaine in my nose twice, and I only did it the second time because I thought I missed it the first time. <laughs> and uh, so I just, I just, and smoking was a real turnoff to me. I, got, I, I, when I was about fourteen, me and my best buddy. After school, we had a little fishing hole. We'd go fishing. And we went (laughs) and bought a package of Pell-Mells, went to the fishing hole, and we smoked them all. All of them? All of them. I never got so sick in my life. And uh, consequently, it made me so sick, I didn't want to smoke. Uh, My dad told me, if I wanted to drink, come home, we'll drink. And... Consequently, I didn't want to do that with my dad. I felt like I was letting my dad down. So I, uh, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I'm pretty boring. <laughs> I'm on a twelve-step program right now, trying to wean myself off of uh, In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> but uh,
0: that's, that's a real. Uh, well,
1: that's my weakness in life.
0: It. I got. I live by when I get the smell of it comes in my room next to my bed oh, no i'm
1: f- i'm afraid i'd have to move
0: <laughs>
1: it's, no, it, we, we have one in here but I, <laughs> I go about once a month now i've tried to do about once a month at in n out burger
0: i guess of all the habits you can have it's uh, at least you know well, you're not going to crash your car i guess unless you're looking for the fries i have or- habit here what is that oh jack-in-the-box i live at jack-in-the-box
1: get, just get me a couple
0: of tacos <laughs> i'm a happy camper man <laughs> That's the rock and roll lifestyle. It is
1: the rock and roll (laughs) lifestyle. But it is funny that you mentioned that because through that era of the 60s and 70s, where I was surrounded by not only a lot of pot, but I mean, hardcore drugs and acid every day of my life. And I didn't do it. And the reason I didn't do it is I've always had this attitude. I will not put you down or denigrate you for anything you do. But don't put me down if I don't do it. Right. And that's where my head has always been. Uh, You know, like, I've been in groups, the guys are getting loaded every day. You know what, fine. Don't do it if it's gonna affect our show. And there were nights with the first edition, our lead guitar player was so stoned, he thought he was Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) And he was horrible. (laughs) And we attacked him after the show in the dressing room saying, you let us down tonight one more time and you won't be here. And I just know what I can do as a musician. And when I was at the top of my game, there was nobody any better. Johnny Rivers used to tell people, my drummer has the heaviest right foot in L.A., and like I said, when I was at the top of my game, nobody was any better. I don't have the chops today that I had when I was at the top of my game. So consequently, I don't I don't really want to go sit in and play with people today because I know there may be somebody out there that remembers me when I was with Bob or Kenny Rogers in the first edition. And I could flat kick ass and take names. And I don't feel like I can do that today. So I don't get up and sit in with people because I know I don't have the chops that I had then. And I don't want anybody to be disappointed in what they hear today. Mm -hmm. So I am very proud of what I did through the 60s and 70s, and even the late 50s. And uh, I have 17 gold and platinum albums. Uh, I now have this magazine that's trying real hard to get me nominated to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And,
0: uh, And you said there's only two drummers.
1: Only two drummers that are in the Hall of Fame as drummers, and it's Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer. The other drummers that are in there are in there because they're part of a group. Now, Bob Dylan's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but the group that went electric with him is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, except the band is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but they're in as the band, not the group that backed Bob Dylan. Uh, Here's what's interesting. Johnny Rivers is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And if anybody deserves to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's Johnny Rivers. In fact, I introduced Johnny Rivers uh, last Saturday night. He did a concert for a big charity up in Ojai, and he asked me if I'd come up and introduce him, and I said, I'd be proud to do that. And I introduced him as the man that should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I I, am putting together a... a, a an anthology DVD on the life and career of Johnny Rivers. And I went and interviewed George Thorogood for this DVD.
0: It's one of the first concerts I've ever seen, and Johnny Winter opened for him, yeah. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah, uh, outside Chicago.
1: Well, uh, we had Johnny Winter and Edgar Winter on our TV show, uh, Rolling on the River with Kenny Rogers in the first edition. But I stood up on the stage and I said, you know, George Thorogood stood up on the stage at the rock and roll hall of fame and inducted Chuck Berry into the rock and roll hall of fame. And what he said was, I am honored to be here to inter- induct Chuck Berry into the rock and roll hall of fame. But the man that ought to be standing here, inducting Chuck Berry into the rock and roll hall of fame is Johnny rivers. So, uh, he believes Johnny Rivers ought to be there, and I do too. And uh, is there
0: I, anybody rallying to do so, or like I don't know how that? You know,
1: of- I don't, I'm not sure how it works. I know that the the uh, magazine Classic Drummer uh, is, which I'll show you today. They're trying to get me in, and uh, and I mentioned that to them, so they may be trying to get the ball rolling for Johnny Rivers, because you look back at Johnny Rivers' track record of Memphis, Maybelline, Mountain of Love, Secret Agent Man, Tracks of My Tears, Poor Side of Town, the hits he's had, and we got people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had one record.
0: That, I don't, I don't yeah. get that. No, that's not just at all. I don't get
1: that. So go figure. I've played on dozens and dozens and dozens of hit records.
0: Hello and welcome to the middle of the show and thank you so much for making it to the middle of the show. We're going to return to this episode very shortly with Mickey Jones, but real quickly I just want to ask you, if you can, donate a little money to the show. Go to my page at feralaudio.com and you can click on the donate button and uh, this helps a little bit of money, even if everybody gave a dollar to five dollars, you skip some, uh, some of that fancy coffee one day this week. And uh, we get that money and we use it for equipment and eating and materials that make this show a better quality. It's not like we go out and buy Coke with it. If you can't afford to donate, I understand. Uh, but if you need to buy your Christmas shopping, do all your Christmas shopping through my Amazon link and I get a kickback of that money. And it'll be, um, that'll help us out a great deal. I greatly appreciate it. You can also follow me on Twitter, Matt at twitter.com. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be going on the road and in the new year. So with David Keckner, uh Anchorman's David Keckner, aka uh, Champ Kind. So you can see me live with him. And um, you're awesome. Thank you very much. Is there any, with all the people that you've ever played with? Was there ever any that that you still like? You couldn't kind of believe it, even when it was happening. There's somebody that you just worshipped or, or admired so greatly.
1: Well, I would have to say it would be Bob because Bob was the folk icon of the generation. And I was a big fan of Bob long before I met Bob. I had Bob Dylan albums. I loved listening to Bob. After I first met Bob... uh. uh I met him when I was with Trini Lopez, long before Johnny Rivers. And and we met Trini Lopez. We were checking out of a hotel in San Francisco called the Villa Roma, right at Fisherman's Wharf. We had been playing up on uh, Off-Broadway, a club called Off-Broadway at North Beach. And Bob was coming in to do a concert at, uh, oh, gosh, Fillmore, Fillmore West. So, Bob's checking in, I'm checking out, and Bob and I got to talking in the lobby. He said, "Man, I want you to, I want you to hear this new album. You're gonna love it." And he gave me this album, and it was called "Bringing It All Back Home." And I, uh, I had a little record player. <laughs> this, you gotta remember, man. This is like, uh, this is like, uh, '60s. And I had a little record player in my briefcase that when you open it up, the arm would come out so you could play an LP. So I was, uh, I got back, we flew to the next gig, and I, first thing I did, I got in my room and opened up my, my record player, and I put, playing it all back home, a little monoral record player, you know. And I was astounded, because lyrics like I'd never heard in my life. And... It made me that much more of a Bob Dylan fan. So when I got the call from Albert Grossman, he said, uh, well, let me just back up. I'm, I'm working a club in Detroit, Michigan with Johnny Rivers. And I get a call from Albert Grossman. I don't know who that is. So I don't call. He wants me to call back in New York. So I didn't call. I get back over a week span of about a week i get a stack of messages call albert grossman and then i noticed it said call back operator six so that was means he was paying for the call so i uh i call back <laughs> albert grossman and lady answers the phone she said grossman associates i said uh, yeah i'm calling for al she said well who's calling and i said my name's mickey jones she said, oh, my God, don't leave. Don't move. Don't go anywhere. Hold right there. Hold the phone, please. Okay. So I, I get, get on the phone with Al. And he said, Mickey, we've been looking at you for, for about two weeks. I said, well, Al, who uh, who are you? <laughs> he said, I'm Bob Dylan's manager. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. Bob uh, Bob wants you to be his drummer. I said, well, we talked about recording and doing some stuff together, but I had no idea, you know, what's going on. He said, no, Bob is going to put a band together. He wants to play electric, take it on the road. And that's all what, it's what he's wanted to do his whole life is play electric rock and roll. I said, well, I'm up for that. Uh, so the first question I asked, first question any good musician asks, how much is this gig going to pay? <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing any musician would ask. And at that time in 66, I was making $500 a week with Johnny Rivers, which I got to tell you, in 66, that was large because Johnny Rivers was paying me $500 a week. He's paying my first-class airfare. He's paying for all my hotels, all my meals, all my expenses,
0: he just was sacking the dough away, right?
1: I was locking it away. It was all <laughs> going back to my wife. So the first thing I ask is, what is this deal going to pay? He said, Well, you know, uh, you'll have to talk to Bob about that. Um, I'm, we're going to have Bob call you on Sunday. I said, Well, I'll be home Saturday. Saturday night is our closing night. I fly home Sunday. I'll be home probably about three o'clock. He said, I'll have Bob call you at four. Okay. Bob called me at four o'clock. He said, uh, Albert told me to call you. I uh, I want you to be my drummer, man. This is going to be great. I said, well, what? Uh, what is this deal going to pay, man? <laughs> he said, well, I want to start you off at $7.50 a week. And I'm like, took my breath away. And I hold the phone I said said to my wife I said he wants to start me at 750 a week she said well you know you want to do it you know you love him you want to do it you should do it so I said uh okay okay. yeah that'll work (laughs) (laughs) he said uh I'll pay all your air travel you pay your own hotel and meals and I said well we probably uh Probably should back up a little bit because even though I'm getting less money with Johnny Rivers, he's paying first-class airfare, all my hotels, all my meals. I don't pay for anything. My check goes into my bank account. He said, well, I'm not doing that with any of the guys. I said, well, you got to make me an offer, man. He came back and he said, how about if I pay all your travel, And I'll pay all your hotels, and you pay your meals. And I thought, I could eat at McDonald's. (laughs) So I said, you know what? Let's do it. It'll be good. So what I found out years later is I was getting more money than anybody else in the group. And they were all paying their own hotels and all their meals. So Bob must have wanted me to do that. So... You know, I I look back on it, I wouldn't trade it. Like I said, I've got 17 gold and platinum albums. Now, you go to Hal Blaine's house, he's got 150 gold albums that he played drums on. That's why he's in the Rock and Roll Hall (laughs) of Fame. And uh, so I, I look back at my 23 years in the music business, the eight years with Trini Lopez. I played on all his hit records. If I had a hammer, uh, uh, the b- basis live at Basin street, Eat, live at PJs, uh, uh, all those albums I played on him and then the stuff with Johnny rivers and then the stuff with Bob Dylan. And then I only left Bob because he, when he had the motorcycle accident, we, uh, uh, we cancel. We were going back to New York to rehearse for Moscow, and uh, a concert at Shea Stadium. And I had. When that concert got canceled because of the motorcycle accident, I came back to L.A. to try to get in the movie business.
0: And. Uh, what What made you want to get into the movie business? You know,
1: I dreamed of being an actor since I was about eight years old.
0: More than more than a drummer.
1: Yeah. I didn't think I'd ever get a chance to do it, but I knew I could do it. I just, in my heart, I I believed I could do it. So I started pursuing acting. When, When the thing with Bob Dylan stopped, Bob paid me my salary for another year. Wow. While I was trying to be an actor. And then I met, who is my wife, when I was with Kenny Rogers. We were together 10 years and we were uh we opened the International Hotel in sixty nine with Elvis, and opening night I saw who was to be my wife, and I made a decision that day I'm not gonna let her get away.
0: You and knew immediately when you met your wife she was I
1: knew immediately. But we dated four or five years before we it ever got serious serious. And oddly enough we are doing this interview on uh, June seventh, and today is our thirty-second wedding anniversary. Oh man! Yeah, I'm taking her to dinner tonight.
0: In and out. You know what? That may be a good point. I'll, I'll,
1: I'll surprise her. Congratulations! She, thinks, she thinks we're going to this big high-end restaurant. Maybe I'll take her to In and Out. Be a good. Live.
0: I'm uh, flattered and honored that uh, you had allowed me to intrude in your home on such a. We. Uh, we,
1: uh, I- I'm honored to do this for you, man, because I really think it's important that the record be set straight on a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm the only one that can do it. Uh, I spent 10 years with Kenny Rogers, a group called The First Edition. When we started, we were the first edition. In uh, our first big hit record in 69 was I uh, just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in which happened to be Jimi Hendrix's favorite record. Really?
0: Oh, when we'd go it's to a great Miami, song. he'd
1: come see us and get up and play guitar with us. So and he said, oh, it's my favorite record. Just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. <laughs> and, uh, and then we followed that up with a couple of records. Then we had a pretty big hit record called But You Know I Love You. And then we followed it up with a record called Once Again, She's All Alone. And... And wet my whistle there, <laughs> and then we uh, were in the studio. Jimmy Bowen is our producer. Jimmy Bowen said, "Guys, we have a problem. You're leaving to go on the road tomorrow. I've got to. I've got to get one more cut. I'm one song short on this album, and you're leaving to go on the road tomorrow." I got to deliver this album to reprise in 10 days. You're going to be gone six weeks. Do you have anything that we can just throw throw down in 20 minutes? We got 20 minutes of studio time left. Do you have anything we can do quick just for a cut on the album? Kenny said, well, you know, we got this old Mel Tillis song that we've been doing in concert and it gets a great reaction and uh the the people go crazy over the song. It's called Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town. We found it on an old Mel Tillis album. Uh uh I'm sorry, it was on an old Roger Miller album written by Mel Tillis. So uh he said, Well can you lay a little bit Play a little bit. Let me hear what it sounds like. So we kick it off, and I kick it off. You painted up your lips and rolled and curled your tinted hair. Well, we didn't even get through the first verse. He said, cut it. Let's lay it down now. So we did the track in one take, and they did two passes with vocals, and we cut that in about (coughs) less than 15 minutes. And it's the biggest hit record the group ever had. Now, the problem was, our new album, First Edition 69, came out. And it was a cut on the album. The single that was out was called, Once Again, She's All Alone, which was a great song and a great follow-up to But You Know I Love You. So, Mo Austin, president of Reprise Records, Starts getting calls from first from radio station in Boston. Said, hey, when is this Ruby record coming out? Well, actually, that's on the album, first edition 69. Uh, It's not the single. The new single is, once again, she's all alone, and we hope you guys will play it. Well, we're playing Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town. Every other song, our switchboards are lit up like Christmas. We got to get this record. And then this radio station in Denver starts calling the record company. We got to have this single. Ruby, don't take your love to town. It's got to happen. So we get called into Reprise Records, Mo Austin's office. He said, guys, we got to get this record out. But you have a single out right now, and we can't put two singles out in the same release window. Who sang lead on that? Well, that was Kenny. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put this record out as a single, under the name Kenny Rogers and the First Edition. And then once that dies down, we'll go back to being just the First Edition again. The record went to number one almost overnight. I mean, it was a huge record. So when it started to die down, we we were afraid that, it might look like Kenny left the group if we went back to just being the first edition. So that's how we accidentally became Kenny Rogers in the first edition. (laughs) Could have very easily been Mickey Jones in the first edition, which I think has a much better ring to it.
0: uh, I'm going to get a time machine and fix this. (laughs) Yeah, see if you can do something about that.
1: So pretty much eight years with Trini Lopez, three years with Johnny Rivers, two years with Bob Dylan, also the original drummer with the band, and then 10 years with Kenny Rogers in the first edition. So musically, that's a pretty good career. That's a
0: Yeah, and then you're like, well, I'm, now I'm going to start a really big acting career, which, well, did, I mean, I guess you didn't, did. what were your thoughts when you were going into it? Because it is, you've... I can't even count oh. how many credits you have acting wise. When
1: I told my wife, who was then my girlfriend, that I wanted to, I wanted her to run away with me. We were sitting in a Mexican restaurant between a double header of a ladies' softball game that she played. Ladies' softball, and and I said, uh, we're sitting there, and I said, I, I want to ask you a question. She said, Yeah. I said, Do you think there's any chance that you uh, would consider? Uh, running away with me forever. And she looked at me with that look, and I said, before you answer this question, I want to tell you, I'm going to give Kenny Rogers my notice. I'm going to leave the first edition. I want to go to L.A. I want to pursue an acting career, and I don't want you to think for one minute we're going to waltz into L.A., and I'm going to have an acting job because it don't work that way. She kind of looked at me, and she said, well... For me to do this, you'd have to promise me one thing. You'd have to promise me that if after a couple of years, things aren't going the way you think they should be going, and I'm thinking way ahead, she's going to say, you'll go back to the music business. She said, you got to promise me you'll never quit. Wow. I said, baby, you are coming with me. (laughs) And I, I give her really all the credit because she worked, two and three jobs for about three years till I could get it rolling.
0: Did it Did it sort of get s- slim Pickens there for a while? Oh, because-
1: I was pounding the pavement for the first three years trying to get an agent because you can't get in to see a, an, a casting person or a director right. except through an agent.
0: And none of the music business connections helped? Didn't
1: it didn't happen. didn't help a lick. Now, the one thing that was good is because... The Bob Dylan year that he paid me, and I was here trying to get into it, I was able to get into the union, the Screen Actors Guild. Today, that's the hard lick,
0: Yeah, that's getting
1: in the union. Uh, I was able to get in the union. So because I was in the union, I did have agents that would at least see me. They wouldn't even see you if you're not in the union. And uh, the first agent I had said, well, you got to get a haircut. You got to get a sh- you got to shave. You got to be able to play a doctor, a police officer, a lawyer.
0: Because so, agents always know the right. <laughs> I'm, uh-huh. I'm being sarcastic. Agents give you some of the work. I had one guy tell me he's like, "You just need to start wearing suits." I'm like, first of all, I don't own a suit." Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: like, that's what they 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 told me. You're you're probably going to get cast as a policeman, a doctor, a lawyer. I said okay, so I went out and shaved and got a haircut.
0: How did you feel about it?
1: I couldn't get arrested. <laughs> the first job I got was a, a Viking in a two-board beer commercial, and I spent three hours while they hair by hair put a beard on me and this mustache. I, I couldn't hardly move my mouth to talk. I mean,
0: <laughs> you must have been like, what have I done? Yeah, what I have. What have I done? Did you just grow it all right back then? Well,
1: no, I, uh, I left it short. And then I got a call from a friend of mine who's a stuntman saying, would you mind don't shave and don't get a haircut for the next six weeks? Because we're going to do this Lincoln Mercury commercial and you'd be perfect for this biker. I said, yeah, uh, yeah, good. So I had a new agent by then. And quite honestly, the longer my hair got, the longer my beard got, the more I started working.
0: It's your, Sam- your so Samson. So if
1: it ain't broke, don't fix
0: it. I think a lot of, that's the mistake a lot of people make when they get to L.A. They stri- they start trying to be somebody they're not. I mean, exactly. and it's a, it's a maddening, it's maddening because when I first moved to L.A., you know, and I had a pretty big resume. I'd worked a lot of theater and all these things. And it's... You just go, well, what What do I know? It's L.A. Like, there's a weird, in- I mean, you have a... Well, I,
1: I, I tell young actors, if you're doing pretty good where you are, don't come to L.A. Because you're be- going to become a minnow in a land of sharks. And that's the truth. I am very fortunate. I did get a body of work behind me. But then I got very involved in things here where I live and at the risk of and I don't want this to sound like my ego but I am the king of Simi Valley
0: I mentioned your name the other day uh to these because I kept saying oh I'm coming back on Thursday and then finally I was like oh yeah I'm interviewing Mickey Jones Mickey Jones he's a legend around here (laughs) well and you're not a ego you're a pretty humble (laughs) grounded fella
1: you know what I'm about as important as a grain of sand out of the beach that's how I look at myself. I think that's we should all and, look at ourselves that way. It, but it's interesting because I the I got a call from the local GMC dealer. guy wanted me to come up and uh, do commercials for him. And I said, well, you know, it, I have to say no. Thank you, but I have to say no because what's going to happen the first time I'm at the car wash and some guy comes up and says, hey, I saw your— gmc commercials how come you're driving a ford (laughs) (laughs) so that's really not going to work for me because i have accumulated a great deal of credit in this city Uh, uh i have credibility in this city and and if that happens all my credibility is out the window so i said thank you but i can't do it week later the guy calls me up and he said Walks me out on the line, this big, beautiful, black crew cab dually. He said, how about, uh, could we trade? You do commercials for us, and we give you that new crew cab dually. And I said, uh, "We, um, well, yeah, I think that will work. <laughs> so that's what we did.
0: You, uh, you accidentally, your honesty helped negotiate you a new car.
1: Everybody should be honest. We, we the, the, there's a restaurant not here anymore because the the guy who owned it died and they went out of business. But it was called Paul's Italian Villa and we loved it, great Italian food. And after a few years of us eating in there, the lady who is the wife of the owner, but she really runs it, she sat down at our table one night and and she's her name's Roseanne, sweet, sweet lady. She said, Mickey, uh, how much do you charge for a commercial, and I thought for a second, and I said, Roseanne, you don't want to know what I get for a commercial, but for you guys, I'll just do it. She was shocked. She said, you got to be kidding. You would do this for us? I said, you're our friends. We love this place. If we didn't eat here as much as we do and love it, I couldn't do it, whether you wanted to pay me or not. But we love this place, so let, just let me do it. So, gosh, she's over the moon. So she sends me the script that this guy's written from the cable company. And it's one of these, you know, after a hard day on the set, <laughs> I like to relax. And I'm, I called her up. I said, "Rosanne, I'm not doing that commercial. You know what? I'm going to write the commercial. Let me do it. Let me write it. Because if this is going to be about me and from me, it's got to be from me. So I wrote her a commercial where uh, I walk in the door, and this lady says, Welcome to Paul's Italian Villa. She seats me, and I go, Hi, I'm Mickey Jones. Now, my wife and I have been eating Paul's Italian Villa for I don't know how long. I love the hand-thrown pizza. She's so fond of all those pasta dishes. You want to treat yourself to something really special come check out Paul's Italian Villa. And don't forget to tell them Mickey sent you. <laughs> they And I told her, I said, don't expect too much to happen in the next. It's going to take six months, not six weeks, before you might see a change. She called me six weeks later. She said, our business is up 90% in six weeks wow. from our commercial. I ended up doing about 10 commercials for them. And I mean, and I wrote every one of them and I staged every one of them. I really directed every one of them. And, uh, it's, I can't walk through this town. I can't go up here to the cleaner and not have somebody say, Hey, you own Paul's Italian Villa, right? No, I don't own (laughs) (laughs) it, And it's gone now completely. But, uh, uh, and that's that's what happened. I do commercials for a local guy here in town. Uh, he's a tire dealer, Jim's Tire Man. I found this place after I shopped every tire dealer in town when we came here. He was the best price with the best quality product and the best service. And so that's where I bought all my tires. And then after he saw me doing the commercials for Paul's, he asked me what I do a commercial for him. And I said, uh, Jim, you, it, what I get to do a commercial is stupid. I get 10000 for one day. He said, is there a way we can work something out? I said, you take care of me and my family with tires, whatever they need, and we'll work it out. So I write, I write all his commercials. I do them. We haven't done one in about a year, but but because of those local commercials and me driving the G, the new GMC truck and all that stuff, in in Simi Valley, I am the shark. And I don't mean that to sound the wrong way, but I have a wonderful career, a lot because of who I am here, and 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 my you know your credits as an actor perpetuate. Uh, The first major credit I had was an episode of The Incredible Hulk. I uh, go in to read for this episode of The Incredible Hulk, and all I've done up to this point is one or two lines, the whole parked one or two lines. I'm the security guard. The star comes through and says, Did anybody come through here? And my line is, No, nobody came through here. (laughs) uh, That's it.
0: In that period, did you ever uh, almost... uh, were you just ever, oh, my God, what am I doing? Like, um, Or did you always just know it was going to come together? Because L.A. Never, can be a pretty grinding. I
1: never said, what am I doing? Because remember, my wife said, you got to promise that you'll never quit.
0: i got to get one of those. And
1: I was never going to quit because of her. And so as I started working, I started working this job, and I got a little job here and one day here and started making – going from making $500 a day to making $2,000 a day. She came to me one day. i tell you, I don't know, I think I said, can I quit one of my jobs? And I said, quit them all.
0: How great is that? How great is that? (laughs) But you know what? She
1: earned it. She earned it. And I will be the first to tell the world my wife is responsible for my career. I know actors... They get married, and seven months down the line, I don't think this is going to work out. Well, (laughs) you know what? You didn't fall in love. You fell in lust. And that's what the problem with young people getting married is they fall into lust. They don't know what it is to really fall in love. And and, uh, I know that we're together for the long haul. We're together for the duration. First of all, she's the most beautiful woman I ever laid my eyes on. I'm still not sure how I was able to pull that off. And uh more than anything, she is my best buddy. I could come home from working all day or be in an interview and say, Hey, you want to go to the movies? Yeah, let's go. I mean on the spur of the minute we do stuff like that. And uh she's, she's just she's my partner. She's my lover. She is my best friend. And I will never, ever be able to thank God enough for the woman he put by my side. So, uh, you know, when you think it's, maybe it ain't going to work out, work a little harder at it.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt DeWire. Please remember to listen to the other shows on Feral Audio and... You're awesome, cool people. Thank you for listening. Bye. United States government. It is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary.
1: Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA.
0: Now on feralaudio.com.